I want you to take your Bibles or your apps, whatever you read the Bible on. And today I want us to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now, if you're not familiar with where the book of John is located, uh, what I would have you do is in a physical Bible, open up to the table of contents. Uh, There you'll find that the Bible is broken up into two main sections, the Old and the New Testament. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. So locate the New Testament, the book of John, and then flip over to chapter 8. Now, if you're in a device, what I would have you do is pull down the list of the books of the Bible. You'll find that John is about two-thirds of the way down that list. Uh, So just scroll down until you hit the book of John and turn to chapter 8 once you get there. Now, have you ever had to uh, defend your identity uh, to someone in some kind of situation? Um, A few years ago, Uh, me and one of the pastors that I used to work with at a former church, uh, we had the opportunity to partner with a church in the country of Albania. And so me and this other pastor got on a plane. We flew to Albania. Uh, We spent a week there building uh, partnerships with churches and with ministries uh, in the area that we were looking to take mission groups to, uh, to do the work of the Lord there. And we had a great time. It was a wonderful trip. But It was in the wintertime, it was in February, and we went to get on the plane, Uh, we got to the airport, and we discovered once we arrived at the airport there in Albania, that Boston, the city that we were supposed to fly into, had been hit with a massive, massive blizzard. Uh, And they had shut down all of the airports along that area, Boston and, and most of the East Coast. And we did not have a place to fly into the country uh, from Albania. And so we spent a few hours in the airport there in Albania trying to figure out what was going to happen, talking to the ticket agents. Finally, they had rerouted us. They were going to take us from Albania to Istanbul and then from Istanbul to Houston and then from Houston to Las Vegas where we would then drive from Las Vegas to the town, Lake Havasu City, uh, where the church was at. And so we were, fi- we were relieved. We were finally going to get to get on a plane and start making our way home. And so we get on the plane in Albania, uh, we fly to Istanbul and we land and we get through the airport to the place, the gate that we needed to get on to the next plane from. And the other pastor walked up to the gate, gave his identity, showed his passport. They let him right through. He starts walking down and I get to the gate, show my passport and the ticket agent looks at me and says, there's no record of you in our system. And my heart dropped. I thought, what am I going to do? I'm in Istanbul by myself and they don't have a record that I even exist in their system. Uh, And so the ticket agent was so gracious. He looked at me and he said, listen, uh, sometimes this happens with reroutings. I I want you to go sit over here. Long story short, I sat in that airport uh, for about an hour and a half, two hours waiting for the system to update and my name to be brought back into that system. Luckily, the, the system did update. They found me in the system and they took me in one of those little uh, runway shuttle cars that, that runs luggage to the airplanes. They put me in one of those and took me straight to the airplane and I got on a ladder and walked into the airplane uh, from a set of steps, mobile steps from the, the tarmac. And I was so relieved. They had found my identity. 
I didn't have to defend myself. I didn't have to jump through any hoops. I just had to patiently wait for my name to pop up in that system. Have you ever had to defend your identity or, or struggled with maybe your identity being stolen? Well, today we're going to study a passage where Jesus's identity is questioned. And so I want you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter eight with me. We're gonna begin in verse 48. So that's John chapter eight, starting in verse 48. Now, let me give you some background here on what's been going on. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating uh, the Feast of Booths. It's one of the uh, seven major holidays, holy days, uh, celebrations that the Jewish people were required to celebrate, but from God's word. Uh, and so Jesus, as a faithful Jewish man, has traveled to Jerusalem to go celebrate the Feast of Booths, and he's been in the city for several days. He's been teaching every day that he's there, and now he has been in the middle of a discussion, maybe even a debate, uh, with the people about who he actually is. Now, if you go back just a few verses in chapter eight, he has just said that he has come from his father, from God. And he has said that the people are being deceived by the devil and are not of God because of that deception. And this is a continuation of that discussion. So pick up with me in verse 48 and look what it has to say. So the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Amazing passage of this interaction uh, in the account of the life of Jesus. Now let's break down some of what we read here. Look with me again at verses 48 and 49. Remember, Jesus has just told the Jewish people uh, that, are, that are around him and are accusing him. He's just told them that they have been deceived by the devil and are not of God. 
And so they kind of throw a hurdle, uh, an insult back. Verse, verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. You see, this insult that the, the people throw at Jesus was a massive insult. And in today's world, it would be like saying, are we not right in saying that you are a traitor and you kill puppies? It, it was an insult that went to the heart of the identity of who a person was. You see, by calling him a Samaritan, go back to last week's message uh, on our YouTube page, and, and I give a big discussion about why the Jews hated the, the Samaritans, but the Samaritans were viewed as traitors, both politically and religiously. And so to call Jesus a Samaritan and accuse him of being possessed by a demon was literally one of the most insulting things that the people could have said to someone like Jesus, a, a teacher, a prophet, especially the son of God. And so they, they hurl this insult. Now, I want to stop for just a minute and I want to unpack what's going on here. Why did they say what they said? Well, clearly there were rumors and lies and gossiping that was taking place in the city of Jerusalem and probably in all of Israel regarding Jesus. And they were lying and spreading these rumors for one reason or another. Maybe they didn't believe him. Maybe they wanted to, to destroy him. Maybe they wanted to take power away from him. Whatever the reasons were, we know that these insults and these rumors are being spread among the people. As a matter of fact, if you go back a couple of chapters or one chapter to chapter seven, verse 43, we're told that the rumors and lies and the things that people were saying were creating a division among the people, even amongst the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and scribes. And so we're told that these rumors and lies had divided the people regarding Jesus. Now, let me talk about rumors and gossips, uh, gossiping and lies for just a minute. Rumors, spreading rumors, spreading gossip, telling lies about people is one of the most detestable things according to scripture. Uh, if you go back into Proverbs, it says very clearly that God hates when people tell lies about one another. Exodus 23 commands us to never say something about someone that we don't know is truth. Uh, we only can tell the truth. Uh, so let me give you some examples from the New Testament about what the New Testament has to say about rumors and gossiping and lies. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. That's 2 Timothy Chapter two, verse 23 says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies because you know that they breed quarrels. We live in a society that thrives on controversy right now. Uh, the, the spreading of conspiracy theories and the, the battling of people from opposing viewpoints, uh, spreading lies and rumors, that's kind of what our society is known for right now. But 2 Timothy 2.23 makes it clear that that is not of God and we're commanded to have nothing to do with those things. Listen to 2 Corinthians 12.20. That's 2 Corinthians 
12, 20. It says, for our fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you might, might find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Now, Paul is concerned that the Corinthian church is going to be destroyed because of all this quarreling and jealousy and the gossiping and the rumors and the lies that are being spread. Listen to Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. This is the passage right before the fruit of the Spirit, and it lists out the works of the flesh. Listen to what it says. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and catch this, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And listen to what Paul says. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty hard uh, conviction that Paul is giving us here. Uh, let me just do an excerpt. You know, he's warning us that if we do these things, we'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And part of the things that he lists are enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Guys, we need to be cautious about what we're saying to our friends or behind closed doors that we can't confirm. We need to be cautious about creating divisions or rivalries or factions because according to Galatians 5, 19 through 21, if we're doing those things, we are not gonna inherit the kingdom of heaven. Listen to Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. That's Romans 16, 17 through 18. It says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Again, this is Paul talking, and he's warning about two things. He's warning about those who cause divisions in the church, and he's warning about those who teach contrary things to what the Bible teaches. If we are creating divisions in the church or teaching something that is contrary to this book right here, Paul says that we should avoid people that do that. He goes further in other passages to say, don't even eat with such a person. Listen to Titus chapter three, verses nine through 11. Titus three, nine through 11. It says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up dissension and division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Are you kind of getting the picture? This is again Paul speaking and Paul has been very black and white clear about what he thinks about rumors and gossip and lying and creating divisions and dissensions and factions in the church. 
He says, if you're guilty of thing, these things, the rest of the church should push you out, that they should have nothing to do with you. So I think this is a good opportunity for us to do a self-examination and ask ourselves, think back to conversations that we've had and ask ourselves, have I been spreading rumors or telling lies or creating divisions within the church? Because if that's me, I need to do some reevaluating. But there's a cure. There's, there's an answer to what you should do instead. Listen to what Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15 says. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. It says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So what is this telling us? Rumors, lies, gossip, uh, divisions and factions have no, no place in the church. They have no place among the followers of Jesus. There are not many sins that the New Testament tells us we're supposed to have nothing to do with someone if they commit that sin. There's not many sins that, that the, God's word tells us to do that, to take that extreme. But creating factions and dissensions, creating division in the church is one of the few sins that we're commanded to push people out if they do that. So be cautious. So what do we do about this? We all have to deal with rumors and lies and gossiping and divisions that we see happening or are ourselves creating. So, so let me just say very quickly, if you're guilty of one of these, just stop. I don't care what you're saying or what you're doing. If it has anything to do with lies or controversies uh, or gossiping or creating division in the church, stop. You are in dangerous, ungodly and sinful territory. Don't have anything to do with that. Maybe it's the people you hang out with that you need to stop hanging out with because you're tempted to sin when you're around them. I don't know what it is, but you need to find a way to get rid of that sin in your life. If you know someone who does this, talk to them the way Matthew 18 commands. Matthew 18 says, if you know a brother in sin, go and speak with them. And if they won't listen to what you have to say, if they push you away, go and speak with them again, but take uh, one or two people uh, along with you as witnesses. And if that doesn't work, then take it to the leadership of the church and let the leadership decide what to do. So if you know someone that does this, go and talk to them and offer ways to get out of that sin. Offer accountability. If you hear rumors and gossip and people creating divisions, put a stop to it. Call it out right there in the moment or pull the person aside and say, hey, I love you in Christ and this must stop. This is a sin. Please let me help you not do this anymore. And lastly, if you know of divisions that are being created in the church, I know this is difficult, but you need to talk to the leadership of the church. 
You need to talk to someone that is in leadership so that they can become aware so that it can be addressed in a godly and biblical way. And so let me just be very clear. Rumors, lies, gossip, factions and divisions have no place in church. They have no place amongst God's people at all. And so please, if, if you know of that or you're guilty of that, do something about it. Take action to purge that from your life. Now let's move on uh, further into the, this passage. We find that because of these rumors and lies, Jesus has to yet again defend himself and who he is. So pick up with me in verses 50 and 51. It says this, Jesus is speaking and says, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What an amazing promise. If we keep his word, we will never see death. And he's not talking about your physical body dying. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about the eternal death, the eternal punishment that all of us are, will face if we don't know Jesus. And then he speaks, he spends verses 52 through 57 explaining his authority. And he goes into this talk about Abraham and knowing Abraham and that Abraham rejoiced in seeing the day of Jesus. Now he's referring back into the book of Genesis where Abraham has a vision. God gives him this vision uh, of what's to come and, and, and confirms the promise that he gives him. Now back then, if you go back and read what Jewish teachers and religious leaders wrote about that vision, you'll find that they believed that Abraham didn't just see what was going to happen in the next few hundred years with his descendants. Uh, they believed that, they, that Abraham saw all the way to the redemption that would come through Jesus. Uh, his descendant, Jesus. And so they believe that in the vision that Abraham was given by God, that he actually saw what Jesus would come and do thousands of years after him. And so uh, he makes this bold statement. So look with me now in verse 58. So he's, he's had this discussion about Abraham um, and Abraham seeing his, his redemption. And then in verse 58, it says this, and Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if any of you know English grammar, you know that that sentence does not make any sense. Um, it's a past tense used with a present tense in the same, uh, same idea. And that doesn't work. It doesn't make sense at all. Um, not only that, remember, the people uh, are in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Booths. And during the Feast of Booths, one of the things that they did was they did a reading of some passages out of Isaiah 43. And in Isaiah 43, God proclaims, I am. And he uses this I am statement multiple times through Isaiah 43. So you take those two ideas together that they've been listening to Isaiah 43 where these I am statements are being given. And you take the fact that the grammar doesn't work. The past and present tenses used together in this way don't make any sense. When you take those two things together, you realize very quickly that Jesus's listeners immediately knew what Jesus was saying. 
So what was he saying? Jesus was referencing back to Exodus 3.14. Exodus 3.14, Moses um, is standing in front of the burning bush and he has uh, been commissioned by God to go to Egypt and rescue God's people from the slavery that they're under in the country of Egypt. And he, Moses asks God, who am I supposed to tell the people? Who am I supposed to tell them is sending me? And God says this, I am that I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Big statement. Basically, uh, God is giving a name to himself. I am. Uh, just uh, later we find out that the, the name uh, is uh, name of God is actually a play on the verb, the I am verb in the Hebrew language. And so in this passage, in verse 58, Jesus is very, very, very clearly making the statement that he is God. He uses God's own name in this moment. Now, C.S. Lewis, who's a, a famous author from back in the day, wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. Saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. You see, C.S. Lewis is making a threefold argument here. He is saying that we cannot accept that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but not God. Uh, we cannot accept that because based off of the things that Jesus said, he was either God or he was a crazy person who thought he was God, or he was a deceiver and a liar and intentionally deceived the people away from God. Those are the only three options that are viable when we look at what Jesus said about himself. So we believe that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. And that brings me to today's big idea. Today's big idea is this, his deity gives us surety. His deity gives us surety. You see, the perfect, eternal creator and savior of the world is who Jesus is. He conquered death, both physically and spiritually. He conquered sin, both past, present, and future sin. You see, his victory gives us victory. It gives us victory over the eternal death that comes as a consequence of our sins. He rescued us from that. You see, here's the thing. Jesus is sovereign. Now, what does sovereign mean? It's a, it's a big churchy word. It's used in political settings a lot of time. Sovereign simply means that the person who is claiming to be sovereign is saying that they are in control. When I say Jesus is sovereign, when I say God is sovereign, I mean that God is in control of everything. There is nothing outside 
of the control of Jesus. He is 100% sovereign. He's in control of everything that happens in this world. His deity gives us surety. And maybe you're watching right now and you've never begun the process of following Jesus. And let me just say, I've already said it, Jesus was and is the son of God. He is sovereign, he controls everything. But the primary, the, the reason that Jesus came to this earth almost 2,000 years ago is because he wanted to come to save us, to rescue us from our sins. Our sins are the ways that we disobey God or we don't do the right that we know we should do. And those sins have eternal consequences. Without Jesus, we will pay an, an eternity of punishment for those sins. But if you become a follower of Jesus, then your sins are wiped away and you're declared innocent. So instead of eternal punishment, you instead will receive eternal perfection with Jesus, where you will have no suffering, no pain, and a perfect existence. And all Jesus asks is that you dedicate your life to him, you believe in everything he did and said, and that you lead others to him. And if you've got questions about that, if you wanna know more about what it looks like to, to follow Jesus, what I want you to do is I want you to take your device and I want you to text the word CHANGING to 94000. That's CHANGING to 94000. Go ahead and do that right now and we will have somebody reach out to you and answer any questions that you might have about following Jesus. So don't hesitate. Go ahead and grab your device and text CHANGING to 94000. So Jesus is sovereign, he's in control of everything. And that control gives you and I, if we follow Jesus, it gives you and I victory as well. Go read 1 Corinthians 15, uh, but especially verses 50 through 58. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 through 58, talk to us about the victory that Jesus has given to us. He gives us that victory because he is who he said he is. The fact should give us peace. The fact that Jesus is sovereign, the fact that he is God should give us peace. Because if he's sovereign, if he's in full control, then we've got nothing to fear. We have nothing to worry about. We can have 100% complete trust in him because he is God. We don't have to make arguments in our mind any longer. You know, we don't have to play the game that was being played in John chapter eight, where Jesus was having to uh, defend his identity. We know who he is. We know that he is God. We know that he is sovereign, that he's in control. And therefore, we don't have to fear or worry about anything in this world anymore. Nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing can thwart his plan for the world or for you as an individual. Place your trust in his control. Trust him. And so I think the closing question today is simply that. Will you place your trust 
in the sovereignty of Jesus. It's there. It's reliable. Every promise that Jesus gives is true. But will you be willing to let yourself go and stop having to control everything and trusting the world around you and instead simply trust him? Will you do that? Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus and what he came and did for us by dying on a cross to save us, to to rescue us from our sins. And Lord, we pray that we would truly trust him. We pray that we would believe in his sovereignty, in your sovereignty, and that in doing so, that we would put away all fear and worry. Lord, we also pray that you would convict us so that we would no longer be a people that tells rumors or spreads lies uh, or gossips or creates divisions, dissensions, and factions within your holy church body. Lord, help us to repent of those things. Help us instead to be a people of purity and truth and unity. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all of this In Jesus' name, amen.